Well, last week, as we continued with our study of the life of Jesus, we looked together at Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And we talked most primarily about the fact that as the Good Shepherd, He lays down His life for His sheep, but that's not all that we saw, that's not all that we learned, because as we got to the very end of the message last week, we learned something else. We learned that as the Good Shepherd, Jesus not only lays down His life for His sheep, but that He then takes it back up again for His sheep as well. In other words, Jesus, is the, as our Good Shepherd, lays down His life in crucifixion to defeat our sin, but then He takes up His life in resurrection to defeat our death. And that is true physically, by the way, but it's true spiritually as well. In other words, the gospel comes to us and it teaches us that a day is coming, it is set in the mind and heart of God on which the dead will hear the resurrection voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and they will, we will come forth in obedience to His command. Guys, Jesus is the resurrection and I'll tell you why because He alone has that power. But as we're going to see today, He's also the life. Now, what does that speak to? It speaks to the reality that as we come forth in obedience to the command of Jesus on that day, we will all of us come forth either to a resurrection unto eternal death and knowing of God, but only in judgment, or to eternal life and knowing of God and only in blessing. And what's the difference? You say, well, the difference is Jesus, and that's absolutely true, but really the difference is faith in Jesus from our perspective, a faith that John has been calling us to over and over and over and over again all the way through this book. He is holding before us eternal life and eternal death, and he's saying, guys, the question is, do you believe? Jesus will stand before us today and He'll say, listen, I want you to know something about me. And He's going to state it rather dramatically and then He's going to back it up in a rather dramatic way as only Jesus can. He's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And then He's going to follow it up by saying, do you believe this? And He's not just speaking to the person He's standing with there. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He is talking to everyone who opens up this gospel and dives into this story. We pick up our study today in John chapter 11, where John gives us the story of a man named Lazarus, who, by the way, has two sisters, Martha, Mary, three huge characters in this story together with Christ, and three really, really close friends of Jesus. They're not just, you know, sort of social acquaintances. They are really tight with Christ. And that's kind of important for you to understand as we enter into the story, because that relationship, very understandably, I think, creates certain expectations on their part. Now, why is that? Because our close friends, guys, have special claims on us. Our close friends enjoy special privileges. There are some people in this life that you will do some things for, and then there are some people in this life that you'll do just about anything for. Well, these guys fit into that latter category with Christ. And they come to Jesus, as you'll see, with a request for Him to do something for them that he has already done for literally thousands and thousands of total strangers. So what's their expectation? Well, their expectation is surely he's going to do this for us. I mean, this is a complete and total no-brainer, and that's even more the case when you hear what the request is, because what hangs in the balance is not something trivial. What hangs in the balance is not something of very little value. What hangs in the balance is the very life of this man, Lazarus. They come to Jesus begging for, longing for, looking for, asking for him to heal Lazarus and save his 
life. And their expectation is that Jesus is going to drop everything he's doing, and he is going to rush immediately to the bedside of Lazarus. He's going to get there just in the nick of time, and he's going to save the day. Well, let's see what actually happens. We pick up our story in John chapter 11, beginning at verse 5, where John says this, and it is so enormously, massively significant. He says, now Jesus, next word is big, and it's loved. Hear how this story begins, because it begins in love. Love is the thread that runs all the way through it. Love is the frame of the picture in which this story exists. Love permeates every level of this story, and it's a big love. Now, Jesus loved Martha, and if that's not enough, and Mary, oh wait, where there's one more, and Lazarus. It's like a stack of pancakes of love, if you will. It's love upon love upon love. He loves these people. And now notice the next word. So... Now, what does that do? John's saying, as a result of the fact that Jesus loved these dear people so very much, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, well, he did what everyone expected he would do. He dropped absolutely everything. He rushed to the bedside of Lazarus. He got there just in the nick of time because, you know, it's Jesus, and he heals and saves this man. End of story. Well, that would be a great enough story if that's the way it happened, but it's not the way it happened. Jesus loved these people so much that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he knowingly, intentionally, and purposefully stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And if you don't know the story already, let me just tell you what happens. Lazarus dies. He dies. So let's picture this for a second. Jesus is off doing ministry. He's not in Lazarus' hometown, which is the little town of Bethany. That's where his life is ebbing away. That's where he's languishing. But he's also not so far away that they can't get a message to him. And it's clear that they know exactly where he is. And so, in fact, they do draft a message. And I think it went something like this. Dear Jesus, Lazarus is sick. It's not the sniffles. It is not a 24-hour virus. This is not, you know, his allergies which flare up because of the dust in this particular time of year every year. And we're really hoping you would just come and ease his discomfort, you know, when you get a chance. The message goes something like, Dear Jesus, Lazarus is going to die if you do not drop everything you're doing and race here immediately and heal and save him. So please come right now. That's the message. And what John is telling us right out of the gate in this story that is completely framed in the love of Christ for these three dear, dear people is that as a result of his love for them, he doesn't go. He doesn't come. He delays and lets him die. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, and Lazarus died. And I want you to just kind of enter into that for a minute. Feel that. Weigh that out on the scales of your heart. And for some of you, that's not going to be too tough, is it? Because you've sent your notes to Jesus. And he didn't come. And what you struggle with is not, you know, did he get my note? Did he understand my note? What you struggle with 
is how can that be love? Don't you think these people wondered that? I guarantee you they wrestled with that massively. I mean, how many times do you think that Lazarus, as he's fading away, okay, you know, before he slips into a coma, said to his two sisters, guys, I just don't understand. Look, you know, I mean, like if Jesus doesn't show up really soon, I'm not going to make it. I don't know how much longer I can actually hang on. What exactly did you say in that note? I mean, was there any ambiguity at all? No, Lazarus, we said, Jesus, Lazarus is going to die. Come on, you helped us draft it. If you don't come right now, drop everything, race here, or it's game over. He's like, all right, well, what about the messenger? Bring the messenger in. I want to meet him. I want to see, I want to talk to him. Can't you hear him cross-examining the messenger? Wouldn't you? Because there's no other explanation for this, is there? Maybe but not one that we seem to have a category for. Tell me, who was this guy that you gave the note to? What did he look like? Well, he's about, I don't know, 5'10". He had brown hair and a beard and brown eyes and long flowing robes and sandals. And he said, verily, verily, a lot. I figured it must be him, you know? Let me ask you something. Do you think that they sent a message this important with a messenger to Jesus who didn't himself know exactly who he was taking the message to? This guy knew Christ. Lazarus, are you kidding me? I know Jesus. I've seen him a thousand times, almost as many times as you. And there he was, preaching and teaching and doing miracles. I mean, there's absolutely no question but that I gave the note to Jesus. He read it. We talked about it. He got the message. He just hasn't come. How many times do you think Martha and Mary left the side of their dying brother to go walk over to the window or to the door to just kind of like look outside, you know, like maybe he's walking up the street or something, or maybe they walked out the door and down the street and stood in the gate of the city looking off in the direction that if he's coming, he's coming from because, again, they know where he is and how far away he is and how long it takes to cover that distance. Why it's so befuddling. How many people do you think they stop just frantically as they're entering the city, coming from that road, you know, from that direction that they would expect Jesus to be coming? And they said to him, hey, have you seen Jesus? Have you heard from Jesus? Does anyone know anything about Jesus? Because this is a no-brainer. Or is it? And then after Lazarus died... How many conversations did these two sisters have that went something like, man, what happened? Did did we offend him? Is he mad at us? Does he love us? Oh, sorry, that's not on the table. It's like John knows that we're going to ask that question. So in the first sentence, he deals with it. And Jesus loved Martha. And her sister Mary, and Lazarus. It's like he knows that's coming, so he just takes it off the table entirely. And you know what? The reality of my life and your life is if you belong to Christ through faith, that's off the table for you and I too. Now, we're tempted to put it on the table and try to make it an issue, but the reality is objectively, 
God operates in our lives in mysterious ways, yes, but there is one thing He has not left open to question, and that is His love for us. If you doubt the love of Christ for you, look at the cross. He has written it in His own blood. Oh, life is mysterious. Life is disillusioning. God indeed causes us to go through things that make us go, what in the world is this? But love is not on the table. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. And what John is saying is that as a result of that love, this was the most loving thing he could do. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he knowingly, intentionally, and purposefully stayed away two days longer in the place where he was, and Lazarus died. How in the world is that love? How does that work, you know? Seriously. Why does he do this? As we're going to see as the story unfolds, Jesus stays away in love because he knows something that these dear people learn through this story, and that I hope that we are reminded of or learn for the first time through this story, and that is that contrary to the way that we think, contrary to the way that we live, contrary to the way that we behave, there are things that are more important to us in this life than our own physical well-being and lives. Eternal things. And Jesus allows these people to suffer and allows Lazarus to die so that He might give to them and to all of the people in their community and to everyone who opens this book and in faith receives this story, something that is more precious even than the life of this man Lazarus or the comfort of his sisters. So Lazarus dies. And finally then, after Lazarus has died, Jesus turns to His disciples and they say, all right, guys, here's the deal. Lazarus is asleep. You hear that? So now we're going to go see Him and I'm going to wake Him up. And they don't understand what in the world He's talking about. So they say, well, Jesus, you know, that's kind of odd. I mean, we got the note that He was sick, like really sick. It was the please come now note that you've ignored. And we're a little befuddled about that, not going to lie. But nevertheless, if He's sleeping and He's sick, that seems to me to be good for Him. That's, you know, kind of recuperative, if you will. Maybe we ought to just let Him sleep. And then John says, then Jesus spoke plainly to His disciples and He said, Lazarus is dead. But you can't run by the fact that He speaks of death as a form of sleep for which He, the resurrection and the life, has the power to wake us up from. It's impermanent. There is a strength in His voice. And that's good news because when they arrive, Lazarus, the funeral is over, and he's been in the grave for four days. And Martha... When she hears he finally arrives, well, she just comes right out to see him. And there's no record of any hugs. There's no mention of any kiss. There's no small talk involved. Oh, it's so nice to see you. You know, we have the room prepared for you. And tell us a little bit about what was going on. What did we miss while you were out there? By the way, did you get our message? Because I'm a little, you know, confused. I love it. It's just raw. It's very real. Verse 21, she comes straight out to Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Now, is that right? Of course it is. It's absolutely right. But look what he says in verse 23. It says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she then responds to him and says, well, I I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, what is she saying? She's just parroting forth what the Jewish people primarily believed in her day, which is that a day is set in the heart and mind of the Father, and on that day, the dead will rise. So there is a resurrection day coming sometime in the future, and, you know, but here's what she's not doing with that statement. She's not connecting that day to Jesus. She does not understand, see his role in that at all. And she's not connecting the reality that on that day, we will all come forth to one of two very different destinations, eternal life, eternal death. And she certainly hasn't zeroed in on the reality that faith in this Jesus, the one who lays down his life in crucifixion to defeat our sin and takes up his life in resurrection to defeat our death eternally, is the difference between those two destinations. So Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she, you know, you can almost see her go, well, I know he's going to do that on the last day. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, she says. And Jesus says to her, here it is, I am the resurrection. The one who will one day call forth the dead and I'm the life. See, I'm going to be the difference on that day between eternal life and death. And then he goes on and he says, whoever believes. Now, why does he say that? Because that's the key. That's the deal. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall, in the ultimate sense, never die, but instead will enjoy eternal life. And then he puts the question to her that John puts to us today. And the question is, do you believe this? About the time he finishes the question, now Mary shows up. She doesn't originally even come out when she hears that he's there. So he has to send for her if you know the deal. Now she arrives, and listen to what she says because it's going to sound very familiar. Verse 32, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that sound familiar? Because I'm thinking these ladies have been talking. It's identical. And not just talking, but suffering. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And now notice what Jesus does. It's significant. It says, when Jesus, who loved these people enough to cause them to suffer, that he might give to them something of far greater value even than their physical lives, and something that is of such great value that it justifies entirely all of their suffering. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jewish people who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it simply says, Jesus wept. But if you're reading the story thoughtfully, you've got to think, why? I mean, Lazarus has been dead four days. He hasn't wept once. And not only that, before they even left wherever it was that they were, to come to Bethany where Lazarus 
was already in the tomb, Jesus stated exactly what he's going to do. Listen, Lazarus sleeps, translation, he's dead, and I'm going to go wake him up, translation, make him rise from the dead. So he's showing up, and he's going to make it all well. What moves Christ? It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the people with her also weeping, You know, what moves the Lord is the tears of His people. It's a fascinating thought. There's a great scene in the last Harry Potter book. I don't know where you come down on Harry Potter. I know that in Christian circles to talk about Harry Potter is almost like talking about politics. Nobody has a mild opinion, it seems. But but if you've read the books and you've read that last book, or maybe if you've seen the last movie, there's this amazing scene where Snape is dying, Professor Snape, who is terribly misunderstood, he plays the villain and accepts all kinds of hate and ridicule that he might be, in many ways, the hero. But he's been struck with a death blow, and he is clearly going to die, and Harry and Hermione and Ron, you know, the three of them, come running into the room, and Snape cries. He emits tears and he utters as best he can to Harry, he says, he says, take them, take them. And Harry looks at Hermione, who has this magical purse in which she has like a warehouse full of stuff, you know, and he's like, I, I need something, give me a vial, give, give me a bottle. A bottle? Well, that's interesting language. Sure enough, she gives him a bottle and he presses it to his cheek and he collects up these tears and Snape says, take them to the Ponceve. Now, what is that? It's this magical instrument by which you can take your thoughts and your memories and put them into the Ponceve, and you can revisit them. You can relive them as a spectator. You can see what's happened in someone's life or even in your life. And Harry takes these tears in the bottle to the Ponceve. And there he has a whole bunch of aha moments, doesn't he? What is J.K. Rowling doing? She's saying that there is a story to every one of your tears. It's very biblical. Where does she get the idea of a bottle? I think from the Old Testament where it says, The Lord collects our tears in a bottle. Good grief, why would he keep them? if not to, in some sense, explain them to us, if not to, in some sense, reveal to us what every single one of them was actually about. We get to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, and it says that God will wipe away all of our tears. How's He going to do that? Now, I don't know if He has a ponceve, okay? But I think there's going to be a pouring of them out a reliving of them in some sense with God and an understanding of them all of a sudden and of the gold and jewels and precious things that God has brought out of the sowing of the tears of His people. He is not passive about our tears. What moves Jesus to cry and even to weep, the, the word deeply moved means, means to snort It means to let out an involuntary gasp. You know, you see little children do this. They just, you know, and their little lip is going in and out and snot's involved. And I mean, it's visceral is the idea. 
It's not a mild, oh. It's a full body shake. If the Jesus you came to worship today is compassionless and disconnected in your mind and heart, then you got the wrong guy. Yes, he causes us to suffer, but only that he might give to us something that justifies all of our suffering in ways that we might not see until we're standing at the sieve, if you will, but in ways we surely will appreciate then. And he doesn't let us suffer alone. The Lord is moved. It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews who saw him weeping said, see how he loved him. But then some of them said what Martha was thinking, what Mary was thinking, maybe what you have thought. Maybe what you now are thinking, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man Lazarus from dying? You know, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? And the obvious answer to that is, well, yeah, I mean, of course he could have done that, but that would have denied him the opportunity to give them something of greater value than the life of Lazarus or than my life or than your life. It says, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And John tells us that it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Get the picture? Now, why is there a stone laying against it? It's pretty practical, really. It's to keep the animals out and the smell in. And this whole crowd now has followed Jesus to the tomb. And they're all of them, no doubt, thinking that he's gone to the tomb to kind of say goodbye to his buddy. He loved Lazarus. And this is going to be sort of a sentimental moment with the teacher. Nobody knows really what he's come to do, which makes what he says next absolutely horrifying, frankly, because he gets to the tomb and he says, take away the stone. And Martha comes a little unglued, I think. And she says something like, Lord... Seriously? You know, I mean, this is crazy. Take away the stone. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Four days. The fourth day to the Jewish mindset, first century, was the day of corruption. It's interesting, you know, when you go back into the Psalms and you see David looking forward to Jesus and he's prophetically speaking of Jesus and of the Lord God, and he says, you will not allow your Holy One, that's Jesus, to see corruption. He'll never get to the fourth day. He's raised on the third. Lord, um, <clears throat> I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here or anything, but... Maybe you didn't do the count on the days, so I'm just going to kind of fill in some missing information, apparently, for you. Uh, But uh, here's the thing. Um, It's going to really smell if you roll the stone back. And, And this might sound a little crazy, but this is maybe my favorite part of the whole story right here. And it's not just because I like nasty things. What I like about this is that in this life, there are many kinds of death. Physical death, but death of all kinds of other things too. And in this life, there are many kinds of stink. The rotting of our physical bodies, yes, but it's a lot of other decay. 
There's a lot of other rot in you and in me. There's a lot of forms and kinds and types of stink, if you will, to our lives. And what this is saying, to me at least, is Jesus is not afraid of that. It's not too much for him to handle. And I can tell you, he smells it most acutely and perfectly. And I remember when I was a kid, I would go to school and I'd come back and I could always tell the day that the exterminator had come to the house. Do you remember that? You know, now they've got like better smelling stuff, I guess. I don't know. I'm still waiting to grow like an arm out of my head from all of the chemicals. But I would come home and I'd open the door and I'd smell the exterminator and complain because, you know, I was a kid. Oh, no, you know, the exterminator. You know, like 20 minutes later, I didn't even smell it anymore. My nose accommodated the smell. I think that we've accommodated a lot of smells, both in our own lives, in the lives of one another, and the lives of our culture. There's more rot than we realize, than we're acknowledging. Jesus' nose does not accommodate. He takes the full whiff. But he also says, roll away the stone. So Jesus says, roll away the stone. And Martha says, no, Lord, you know, not a good idea. I I don't think we ought to do that. And Jesus says, listen, you know, you need to roll away the stone. You really need to do that. And she's like, no, Lord, fourth day, it's going to stink. And then he goes, oh, wait a minute, it's the fourth day? I didn't realize that. You know what? She's right about that. Okay, he tears up some grass. He throws it up to see which way the wind's going. Then he moves everyone upwind of the stone, you know. He hands out bottles of Febreze to all of his guys. He says, all right, now you two with the gas masks, you roll back the stone, and then you guys start spraying because I don't want to catch any whiff of this is all. This is going to be nasty. He requests a mask for the Son of God. You know, does anybody have a surgical mask for me? No. All right. Okay, rubber gloves, no. All right, no, he doesn't do any of those things. He says, look, here's the thing. Don't you think... I know this. There's death behind that stone. There's rot behind that stone. There's decay behind that stone. There's stink behind that stone. But the guy who lays there behind that stone is someone that I love, and we're going to roll it away now and deal with it. Jesus said to her, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And that argument carries the day, and so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said out loud, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Have heard me. It's a done deal. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this out loud on account of the people standing around. Why? Because this is the point, that they may believe, that they may believe that you sent me as the resurrection and as the life, and in doing so, might receive a gift far greater than the value of the life of Lazarus or of anyone else. He wants to give them the gift of eternal life. Verse 43, it says, And when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. But how did he come out? says, with his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And so he's alive, but he's all tied up. He looks like a mummy. He can't walk out. He has to hop. 
and he can't loose himself. And so Jesus said to them, meaning to his family and friends and and this group of people standing there with their jaws on the ground, he says, unbind him and let him go. And that too, I think, is a parallel to us, and I find great encouragement in that as well. Because again, there are many kinds of death. There are many kinds of stink. There are many kinds of, of grave clothes too. And the reality is that when God reaches down and he calls you into a relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit literally makes you alive from the dead spiritually. And you come forth in obedience to the call. I mean, that's, that's what you do. But you're all tied up. You're tied up in your addictions. You're tied up in your selfishness. You're tied up in your immaturity. You're tied up in your sin. And there's an unbinding process that needs to occur. And how does it happen? Well, by the Spirit of God, through the operation of the Word of God, but within the context of community. He frees Lazarus through this community. He says to the people around him, I'm going to put you to work. I want to unbind this man, so do it. And let him loose. Freedom is a community experience. We are, every one of us, to call to live our lives and to grow in our relationship with Christ within the context of community. That's why we push community groups. That's why the women's a summer study is a big deal. We had 80 ladies show up on Thursday night, which is amazing. You know what? We should have 80 more. Community matters, and it is a liberating experience. But like Lazarus, you've got to come forth into it. You know, I mean, Jesus cries out to Lazarus, Lazarus comes forth. Now, here's what Lazarus doesn't do. He doesn't then cry back out of the cave and say, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'd love to, but I'm a little embarrassed. I mean... I kind of smell. If I come forth, people are going to know I've got issues and there's death and rot and stink and decay and all that stuff associated with me and and they're going to see me for this and, you know, I'm a little self-conscious about it. So, Jesus, why don't you, you know, grab a bar of, uh, uh, you know, Old Spice cologne and and grab some soap and come on in here with a bucket and some water and a sponge and I'm going to get all scrubbed up and get out of these clothes and become a bit more presentable and then I'll come forth. No. It's just come forth. And it also says something about the community. We need to be a community of people who kind of like these guys don't run from someone because of their smell. We all smell a little more than we think. And if we've been delivered, it's not to our credit. It's to the credit of Jesus who seeks to use us to deliver others. So he comes forth and these guys unwrap him, which is a real community event, and it's what real community does. And what's the end result? John tells us, verse 45. He says, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done together, I think is the idea, with Mary, with Martha, with Lazarus, who learned this lesson most profoundly, I would think, they believed in him. And not just as Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world, but also as the resurrection, the one who alone can call forth the dead. That's big. And as the life, the difference 
between eternal life and death. The good shepherd lays down his life in crucifixion to defeat sin for us, and he takes up his life in resurrection to defeat death eternally for us as well. And he offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe. What's the question? Do you believe this? And I pray you do.